as a pastor, I've found that an insightful question over the years when I'm sitting down with a believer or maybe a member in a church is, can you give me a brief overview of your walk with God? It's a good open-ended question, and I can usually learn a lot as somebody begins to talk and describe from their perspective as they give an overview of what their, their walk with God is like right now. And in saying that, we are asking someone to describe what their daily Christian life looks like. To describe your walk is to describe what your daily Christian life looks like. As Christians, as we live our earthly life, we are together, we're walking toward, is a way biblically to think about it. As Christians, we're living our lives together, walking toward our final destination. Our final destination that we're walking toward is, is heaven, where we will be united together with Christ. And so we're on a walk, if you will, with God, and we're on a walk for God, and we're on a walk to God. And we get that, that Christian life describing term, walk. We didn't make that up. We get that from Scripture. Specifically, we get it from the Apostle Paul. Uh, walk is his preferred metaphor for the Christian life. He uses it in almost every single one of his letters, and he uses it the most in this letter that we've been studying together, this, this book of Ephesians. I'll read you some examples. In chapter 2, verse 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He also uses the term in chapter 4, verse 17. And now, in chapter 5, which is where we'll be this morning, in verses 1 through 21, he uses that word walk three more times, just in these verses, to get into our heads what it means to be a Christian here on earth. So if you're taking notes, here are the three ways that Paul calls us as Christians to walk. And then we'll look at each of them this morning. Number one, walk in love. That's going to be verses one through six of chapter five. Paul calls us to walk in love. Second, walk in light. That'll be verses seven through 14 where Paul calls us to walk in light. And then third, walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. So Paul describes for us this Christian life here on earth. It is a walk, and we are to walk in love. We are to walk in light. 
and we're to walk in wisdom. Let's take those instructions one at a time, but first, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, through your word and, and by your spirit, would you teach us today? Our minds are dark and our hearts are cold without you. So would you come and minister to us through your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. For your good as a Christian and for the glory of God, this is how you and I should walk. And Paul's going to say three things. So number one, we're to walk in love. Let's begin in verse one, where Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore, that is because we are God's beloved. We're forgiven. If you look at the verse right before, those verses right up before at the end of chapter 4, we have been forgiven. And because we have been forgiven, we have now been adopted. We're his beloved children, chapter 5, verse 1. We have been adopted by him, and so we should imitate him. All children, in some way or another, they imitate their parents, don't they? My wife and I say, for better and for worse. Right? You see things in your children, or as you get older, you remember things about your parents, and you find yourself, not even intentionally sometimes, just imitating whatever you saw in your mom or dad or in parental figures, maybe even some things when you were younger, like myself, that I remember telling myself, I'm never going to do that. And what do I find myself doing? I do something just like my dad used to do it. So this is, a, this is a, a natural thing. Well, as Christians, think of it this way. We have the best parent. Okay, some of you have good earthly parents. Some of you didn't have good earthly parents. But we all, as Christians, we have the very best parent, if you will, our Heavenly Father. We have this in common. We have our Heavenly Father, and we should imitate him and there's nothing about god more clearly on display and more demanding of our imitation than his great love our heavenly father he is a loving father and so paul says in verse 2 be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We should walk in love because God, through Christ, has loved us. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. Not he loves because we first loved him. God's love is foundational. We don't profess our love for God, and then God says, me too. 
God professes his love for us. And we receive that love and we respond to that love. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is a big word, love. We're called to walk in it. Let's make sure that we're on the same page regarding love, or at least let me explain to you which page I'm on, and you can decide whether or not you want to be on the same page with me. But let's talk for just a minute. Uh, the word love is, is used, let's just say it's overused, okay? And we mean so many different things when we say it. I'll give you an example. I'll use the same word, but I'll use it in two sentences, and you're going to know that I mean something totally different. I love my wife. I love beef jerky. I'm telling you, those are both true statements. But you don't, you know right now that, or hopefully, that I mean something completely different when I say those two sentences, but I'm using the same word. So let's, when we're, when we're seeing this word here in Scripture, what are, we, what are we talking about? So let me just give you a working definition after studying the word and praying through and thinking about it. And this isn't the best definition by any means, but let's just have something to work with here biblically. I'm going to say love is the inevitably costly effort to do what is best for the beloved. Okay, let's, I hope you can agree with that as a definition of love that we can sort of work with and have that in mind when we're reading about love that we're supposed to walk in here in Scripture. Love is the inevitably costly effort. It's effort, and it's inevitably costy, costly, and it's an effort to do what? Whatever is best for the beloved. Whatever is best for the person that you love. So God has demonstrated his love for us in doing just that. God the Son, Jesus Christ, out of love for us, gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Paul says here in Ephesians. Listen to those phrases describing his love, gave himself up. Offering, sacrifice, to love, to walk in love is to give ourselves up for those we love. It's the example of Christ. It is to love others by offering ourselves. It is to love others by sacrificing ourselves, which means it is costly giving yourself up, offering yourself up, sacrificing your own time, sacrificing your own desires, all of that that you're giving up for someone else, it's valuable. And so it's costly to us when we give it up for those that we love. This is an uncommon thing, I think. If we talk about love this way, it's not so common. Walking in love is not what we're surrounded by. 
It's certainly not what comes natural. What comes natural is what Paul brings up next. In contrast, we'll see here, to love is lust. And these are very different. And what comes naturally is lust, not love. And what is more prevalent today is lust, not love. And let me explain what I mean by that. Love is selfless. Lust is selfish. Love is others-centered. Lust is self-centered. Love looks to give. Lust looks to get. Very different. Love says, I'm here for you. What does lust say? You're here for me. Very, very different. Love is what Paul just described in verses 1 through 2. And now he contrasts it with lust or selfish indulgence in verses 3 and 4. But, it's a contrast word, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So the Greek words here behind sexual immorality and all impurity, they are two words that when you bring those two words together, here's what Paul is trying to include. It is any and all sexual activity that is outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. It's just, he's just using this very broad terms to cover anything and everything, all sexual activity that is outside of this very narrow expression, and that is between one man and one woman who are in covenant with one another through marriage. So you know this as Christians. You know this. Our world increasingly does not know this, or has heard it and rejects it. But we know and we believe that within marriage between one man and one woman is the only place sexual intimacy belongs. There and only there it fulfills its intended purpose. It has been designed by God, invented, if you will, by God to profoundly express affection and devotion to one and only one beloved. Immorality, on the other hand, does not look to express devotion and affection to one person that you are in covenant with. Quite the contrary, it looks to get what you want, that is to covet, is the word Paul uses, out of someone else. And that, you see his point, is the opposite of walking in love. It's an example of what is the opposite of of walking in love. And apparently, that sort of sexual immorality was rampant and was a big problem in Paul's day. And 
it's a big problem in our day. So his words are still very relevant. He goes on in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Okay, so Paul's going on here to say, not only should we not engage in this kind of wanting and this kind of taking, he takes it a step further and says, listen, we shouldn't even talk about it. We shouldn't even joke about it. But rather, but instead, Paul says, instead of talking about it, joking about it, making light of it, which is another problem, we still have. Instead, here's the alternative, let there be thanksgiving. The opposite of covetousness is thanksgiving. The opposite of being consumed with what you want but don't have is thanking God for what you have. When we get consumed about what we want and don't have, that leads to lust. When we're consumed with thanksgiving, and thinking about what we have, that leads to love. Now, for some, that's enough. Understanding the difference between love and lust, it's enough to motivate you to walk in love. But others may need a stronger reason. So Paul writes verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, which is worshiping created rather than creator, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What a sobering thing for Paul to say. He's saying those who covet and take Rather than those who are content and give, they have nothing ultimately to look forward to. This life will be as good as it gets. It's a sobering thing for Christians who are in sin, for believers who are in rebellion, disobedient. Scripture will often write words like this to us, and that is what God will use to, to wake us up, to snap us out. So verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There's a lot of empty words. Empty words that you might hear today that would make you think that some of this living that is opposed to God is okay are things like God wants you to be happy, so go ahead and do whatever you want. Which you'll hear many professing Christians say things like that. I have over the years. You have a professing believer, friend, or family member, and they begin to do things that are out of step with Christ. And you confront them and you, you call them on this. And they say something like, uh, doesn't God want me to be happy? Or they say it with more confidence and boldness. I believe, they've changed their thinking. I believe that God wants me to be happy. 
And we would just want to finish that sentence for them and say, well, how about God wants you to be happy in Christ? The Christian life is not a dour life. It's not a, a miserable life. Quite the opposite. The word happy doesn't really hit it as well as it should. The Christian life is a, a joyful life. Happiness sort of comes and goes depending, for most of us, happiness sort of comes and goes depending on our circumstances. But joy is abiding. A constant, deep joy that I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to me. The peace that comes from knowing that, the hope that comes from knowing that leads to a deep and abiding joy. And you can have, Christian, that sort of joy when you're not happy. I often do. I'm not happy. I'm not happy about what happened today. I'm not happy about what's going on. I'm not happy about this thing that I'm dealing with. But then I can pause. I can pray. I can hear God's word. I can remind myself and I can get deeper. And even in my unhappiness, be joyful. So this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he's saying, Christians, we must not walk in lust, looking to take what we want from others. We must walk in love. Give yourself up, Christian. Give yourself up in doing what is best for your beloved. Love your family, love your church, love your friends, love your spouse, love your kids, love those that God has put in your life. Walk in love. Let's move on to verses 7 through 14. The second way that we are to walk is to walk in light. Therefore, verse 7, do not be partners with them, that is the sons of disobedience in verse 6. Do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, here it is, as children of light. This is something different that Paul says here. If you think about it, in other places he and other writers, they have described Christians as being in light. For example, 1 Peter 2.19 says, God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And elsewhere, we're told. So Christians have been brought into the light. Christians live in the light. But this is different. But here he says, we are light. That's different. We are light. We put this together, and Scripture is saying, as F.F. F. Bruce puts it, that our lives, and not just our environment, has been changed from darkness to light. Our environment has been changed as Christians. We've been brought out of darkness, and we have been brought into light, but also, it's even bigger, our lives themselves have been totally transformed. Our lives have been changed in such a way that we are light. 
And so we need to walk in accordance with who we are. We must walk as children of light. So now let's think about what that means. It could mean a lot of things. But let's see what what Paul has in mind here. And I'm seeing three things. Let's look at each of them. When it comes to walking in light, the first I see is in verses 9 through 10. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So let's pause and think about this. Darkness in your Bible is a symbol for ignorance and evil. And light is a symbol for truth and righteousness. And so because as Christians we are light, Paul says we must try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, because we are children of light, so we are, because we are children of light, we are able, we have this new ability. As Christians, we have this ability to see clearly and to discern what is pleasing to God and what is not. So some of you can remember, some of you can't. But there may have been a day when you couldn't discern that where you did not understand, where you did not see clearly, and you did not know what was pleasing to God and what was not pleasing to God. But now, as believers, we have this ability to see the world clearly, to know what is right, to know what is wrong, in a way that lines with Scripture. Once we've discerned what the fruits of the light are what is pleasing to God, then we must, verse 11, so not only are we able to, to understand what pleases God, but now here's the second thing, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, and now here's the third thing, expose them. So we're able to see what pleases God and what doesn't please God, And so then the next thing to walk in light, so we don't have fellowship with what is not pleasing to God. We don't partner with it. We don't share in it. And then third thing we do as we walk in the light, we actually can expose that darkness. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, let me summarize this walking in the light as we've just come to understand it. To walk as children of the light is to discern what is pleasing to God, then to take no part in what is not pleasing to God, And then to even expose what is not pleasing to God. To expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Or maybe it'll be more helpful for you to remember. To walk as children of light will mean discernment, detachment, 
and disclosure. To be children of light means discernment. We can discern what is pleasing to God like love and what is not pleasing to God like lust. To walk as children of light means that there will be detachment. And I want to say this very carefully. I'm saying it this way and I'm being precise in my language intentionally. To walk as children of light is to detach ourselves, to disconnect ourselves from the ways of this world. And that's the word I thought very carefully about. We're not called as Christians to detach ourselves from the world, to disconnect ourselves from the world. God forbid. And the hope of the world is Christ and his gospel ministered to us and then through us to a broken world. So Christians have gotten it wrong whenever they disconnect and detach themselves from the world and build walls to separate them from the world in an effort to not be tainted by the world and to walk as children of light. This is not an easy thing to balance, but the call is not that we detach ourselves from the world, but from the ways of the world. We're not going to think the way you think. We're not going to live the way you live. We're not going to love what you love. We're not going to desire what you desire. And so we're going to feel like, because we are aliens, the Bible says, we're going to feel like strangers, as the Bible says, but we will be among those in the world. Jesus specifically prayed that in John chapter 17. Lord, not that you take them out of the world. We're here. We're here to bring glory to God, and we're here for the good of others. But we must figure out how to balance and detach ourselves from the ways of the world without cutting off opportunity to share Christ with the world. And then disclosure, which means to reveal or expose, to walk in light, means at times we will call it out for what it is. Expose means, this is in the ESV study Bible, it means either to reprove or to convince through argument and discussion, at the same time taking great care not to gossip or to slander others. So friends, there's a great difference here between speaking about the ways of the world in the dark, verse 12, which we're not to do, and exposing it in the light. And we expose darkness in so many ways. It may happen in your own heart when you openly and frankly confess your sin. It may happen in a relationship when you sit down with a friend and confront sin in their life. It may happen in a church when a member is publicly reproved before other members. It may happen in a society when Christians speak up and call something what it is. It's so important, and we have so many opportunities as Christians to, in love and out of love, 
expose the deeds of darkness that are around us by calling it what it is. I believe it's in Isaiah. A culture is in bad shape when we start calling evil good and we start calling good evil. Then, of course, we live in a day where it is very common for the world to celebrate that which is evil and to condemn that which is good. Well, believers need to, as they have opportunity, to speak up and not just roll with the tide, but to speak up and say, this is not right. And then finally, number three. Uh, numbers one and two, walking in love and walking in light, will require number three here. We must walk in wisdom. Verses 15 through 21, we must walk in wisdom. We're going to need wisdom if we're going to walk in love and walk in light. Look carefully then, Paul writes in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is skilled living. I picked that up somewhere. That's how I've thought of it. Wisdom is skilled living. It is the ability to apply the truth of God to your life. And if you do that, it will help you, verse 16, to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That is a restatement of what Paul said in verse 10. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Wisdom is understanding truth and then living accordingly. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is understanding the truth of God and now applying that truth of God to my life. And then Paul ends this section with some particular wisdom. He declares God's will in regards to coping is what he does here. You know what coping is, I'm sure. Whether you use that word or not, we all, we all do it. We all cope. It's to struggle through difficulty. Coping is struggling through difficulty. The question is, how do you struggle through difficulty? The way you struggle through difficulty is the way you and I cope through difficulty. Well, in Paul's day, also like ours, one of the ways people coped was alcohol. Something else is not unfamiliar today. So Paul says, beginning in verse 18, and do not, here's some wisdom, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, let's pause there with that somewhat loaded phrase, filled with the Spirit. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the term filled with the Spirit. 
I took, uh, I took great offense one time when someone was, uh, was critical of our church. And uh, this was in California years ago. And I felt like the person said almost the worst thing you could say about a church. One of. They said to one of our members, and it came back to me, uh, that they wouldn't be coming back to our church. And the reason they wouldn't be coming back to our church is because we were not filled with the Holy Spirit, which was like a, was like a knife. That's a really damning statement to say that a church is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course the Holy Spirit should fill a church and be among a church and with a church and in a church, with her people and in her people. But what this person meant in saying that our church was not filled with the Holy Spirit, they meant that no one was speaking in tongues during the service. And no one was prophesying during the service. And they felt like there was not enough emotion and uh, tears and clapping and dancing and maybe barking, I think, too. <laughs> we lived in a part of California that was very uh, close to a, a church called Bethel, and we had a lot of a lot of influence in our area from them. And unfortunately, that's what would come to mind for some people when they would read here what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're ever having this discussion with somebody, here's a great, a great place to go because here's what Paul means, verse 19. This is what he means when he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and again, what he's saying is he's talking about coping He's talking about walking in wisdom, and he's saying, okay, here's what's foolish. Here's what's foolish. When life is difficult, which it is always, <laughs> so, you know, life is just difficult. When life is difficult, the, the way you cope foolishly, Paul would say, is to go get drunk on alcohol. That's a very foolish way to cope with your life, also a wrong way to cope with your life. Instead, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does Paul mean by that? He doesn't mean, he doesn't mean speak in tongues. He doesn't mean get, receive, or give a prophetic word. He doesn't mean any of that. Here's what he means. This is beautiful. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit as a church? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's beautiful. And it's a good word when we're looking to understand what does it really mean for a church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's great wisdom and an answer, okay, life's, life's difficult. It's such a simple answer. How do, I, how do we cope? How am I going to cope? How am I going to cope in life? And don't you love Paul's answer? Go to church and sing to one another. Sing to one another, which is what, which is what we are doing. 
That's why something special happens when we're singing in this room this morning that is very different when you're singing in your car. Maybe some of you sing in your car. You hear a song. Maybe it's a worship song and you're singing. That's, that's great. You're praising God and you're worshiping him. That's wonderful. But that could never be what this is. And you realize when we come and we gather together as God's people, that we are not just singing to God, we're singing to one another. You know, the Puritans in the 16, 1700s, and some churches still today, but the Puritans, they would design, they would design where they would worship typically in the shape of a U, so that wherever you were, just about everywhere you were, when you were, for example, singing hymns to God, you would be looking at another believer who was singing hymns to God. Because we're not just singing to God. This isn't just a vertical thing. It's a horizontal thing. And we're singing to one another. And I don't know if you've ever been encouraged in this way. But I have been encouraged in this way. I'll just give you an example. Be singing a worship song, singing a hymn in a, in a worship service. And to look across and to see another believer pouring their heart out to God in song. And I'm not even talking about any emotion that's evident or obvious. Just their voices are raised. And they're singing, let's say, it is well with my soul. And as a pastor or for some of you as church members, you know exactly what that person is thinking about when they sing that. And you know what's happened in their life recently. You know, and I think of examples in ministry, you know the child they lost. You know the husband that left them. You know the job that they just lost. You know the diagnosis they just received. And you see them lifting their voice to God and singing with faith, it is well with my soul. It's just one example. That's how you cope with difficulty. Paul says, this is wisdom. You go and you sing songs to one another. You pray together, he says. You read God's word together. We sit under the preaching of God's word and we encourage one another. Same thing he says to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Christians, we must walk in wisdom. So in conclusion, before we take communion together, if I were to ask you, give a brief overview of your present walk with God, now what would you say? Because Paul, through his words, has filled in some of what that means to walk with God. So I ask myself, am, am I walking in love? 
I ask myself, am I walking in light? I ask myself, am I walking in wisdom? And, and asking myself that question and, and knowing that on the, on the other side of my, my uncomfortable answers is not condemnation, but is forgiveness. Because there's ways I'm not walking in love and I'm, 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 I'm not being loving and I'm not being a good light and I'm not being wise. But I'm under the blood of the Lamb. Okay? So I'm forgiven. I'm enabled. I've been changed. So I know that that's on the other side of, of being open and honest and transparent about where I'm at with this. But now I want to turn out of love for God and out of great gratitude for who He is and what He's done. And I want to please Him more. I want my walk to be more in step with Him. And I want to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom.